Today is November 12th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Nagana Go, Mekoche, Chestakom Oki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south and the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki Bearspaw Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as they've been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane has taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis is Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act imposed status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. When I say hair, I don't mean hair, I mean Arctic fur. Um, I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene Nation is a visitor to this area of Quinchotine Indahe, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging our roles as treaty partners. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous and share uh, my journey as I walk down the red road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening and watching, you can afford and can afford to give. Thank you to those who cannot afford to give. I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. Also, giving a positive review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe, and you can go to Native Calgarian for the latest podcast. My social media usually has the pinned post. So with that, I'm so happy to introduce my guest. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Hi, uh, I'm Rebecca Hainsaw. Uh, I'm here in Calgary right now, and um, I'm sorry I wasn't prepared to name all the, uh, to acknowledge the lands, but I'm originally from Toronto, and I come here via Vancouver. So this is the, you know, fifth province I've lived in, the third of my family, and I've been here in Calgary for five years. I'm very excited to um, finally get a chance to talk to Michelle. It's something I've been meaning to do for a while. Oh, I'm so excited. You know, it, it's interesting that you um, say that because when I first seen your name, it was always in relation to, um, you know, either something cannabis related, opioid related, or something in, in regards to addiction. And you just became one of my favorite people to really follow and see the work that you were doing. And I knew that you were going to be key to us, you know, with with policy moving forward in a good way. And um, it, it's so relevant because by chance tonight in Lethbridge, um, the Blackfoot movie about the opioid crisis um, and about empathy, it's, it's a Blackfoot term for empathy. 
that showing tonight. So I'm so excited for it. And then I'm so excited that I finally got to meet you as well, uh, because obviously this is a passion of yours. And, and maybe for folks who, who may not know, would you mind um, explaining a little bit about the professional work, work you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm, um, I'm an academic and a sociologist by training. So for people who don't know about all of the disciplines, sociology is basically the study of society, as we call it, and the big structural um, changes in society that lead, usually we're looking at problems and hopefully at social change. Uh, and so in that area, I'm also trained in public health and addiction studies. I did my PhD at U of T in that area. And as I said, traveled around to a few provinces for more training. And I landed in a job at the University of Calgary Med School in the winter of 2016, coming here to do what's called health equity and qualitative methods. So mainly in my area, talking to young people about substitutes, but community-based approaches and how we can address those problems through the lens of engaging young people uh, and understanding what we call their social context, rather than mainly the biological medical context of, of risk factors for substance use and other And so after a really, really long journey to getting a job um, and having two babies and, and uh, interviewing maybe 20, 30, <laughs> putting in 20, 30 applications and uh, you know, not being successful, I landed this in this job, but at a really good time for me because uh, it was soon announced that Canada would be legalizing cannabis. And um, in, in a not great way, you know, landing in Alberta when opioid overdose crisis was just wrapping up. And uh, there's some great folks already here on the ground and in academia, but just, you know, needing more voices in Calgary. So I came in at a time when these two things were going on and it, as you said, it allowed me to kind of um, step into that role as an advocate, uh, as an academic. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess around two, six, uh, 2016, I would be thinking about, um, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, uh, there was a, a group that was forming in community-wise and it was a few of us activists, but um, you know, homeless foundation folks, uh, folks who were, were really aware of the issues of the opioids. And then um, I guess for the last 10 years prior to that, uh, working, I was working in Calgary, Forest Lawn, Greater Forest Lawn area with cannabis. There was like a, a group of folks that were trying for decades, decades and decades. And uh, I'm just going to name drop uh, Keith and Debbie Fajin because they had been doing this work, uh, you know, doing a 420 group for for years and years and, and Debbie ran for the Green Party at one point in time and they had been such amazing mentors to me and uh, lucky enough we just had uh, people in the Liberal Party that were like okay this is going to get done and it, it did get done I can't believe it, it it's such a <laughs> I can't believe it because when you talk to folks like Keith and Debbie who had been doing it for for multiple decades and heard the promises before that yet we are going to legalize cannabis and it never got done. You know, you can understand that cynicism, like, oh yeah, so the sun's gonna do it. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> so it, it was really great when that got done. But I think um, a conversation that I'm not hearing enough of is how cannabis 
I think we had done decades of work saying that cannabis is this gateway drug to hell kind of, you know, negative propaganda. But now it, it's actually really critical for helping folks who are in the midst of addiction to maybe harder drugs or, or to opioids or to street drugs, like cannabis could actually be the, the um, one of the gateways to help them get clean, to get sober from some of the other things. But that said, I think you and I would be a little more on the same page about having a clean supply available. Uh, maybe you could explain that a little better than I could as a layperson. Um, you know, you as a professional could probably explain why this is important. Yeah, I think, well, number one, I mean, the biggest picture for me, like if people ask what has been the impact of legalization, I mean, the most important outcome is that people aren't getting arrested, right? So it, fewer people getting arrested is always, and no people getting arrested is the goal for me when it comes to substances. Uh, I personally know many people impacted by, um, you know, police violence and also uh, drug-related charges. So that immediate impact on our families and our communities is so important, especially you know, relevant to your work and to this podcast. We know that Black and Indigenous youth, especially, um, you know, sometimes some of the statistics in Calgary, I think that we saw on the streets, nine times a higher rate of arrest for Indigenous people, you know, for cannabis. So it is, as my wonderful colleague, Akwazi Sugapa in, in Ontario, who says, cannabis is a gateway drug but it's a gateway drug to the criminal justice system. Uh, the school to prison pipeline part. I'm also the mom of two black sons. So I have this orientation towards it too from my policy work, but also from my experience. But back to your question of clean supply. I mean, that's the other major thing beyond not being criminalized is that we have a substance that maybe when surveyed, 50% of people will say that they've tried at least in their times. So if we have a lot of Canadians who used it when it was illegal uh, and people, uh, young people experimenting with it in high school, not as much as they do with alcohol, but you know, it's something that many people have access to and use illegally uh, before it was legal and even now outside of those channels. We need to know what is in the cannabis, you know, whether it was grown with a pesticide, you know, whether it was grown with harmful chemicals, um, how it was packed, how it was shipped. And I think most importantly for young people or those people who might even be more at risk because of an underlying condition because of mental illness, we need to know the THC percentage. And I guess the last thing I would say that, you know, there has been quite a bit of panic. And so one thing I've been talking about is that there isn't fentanyl practice. And it is very attractive to um, some media outlets to kind of hype up the story, but we haven't had a lab confirming it's fentanyl practice. So I tell young people that I'm close to all pills and powders are definitely putting you at risk, um, but we haven't known there to be fentanyl I really appreciate you talking about uh, cannabis in a clean supply manner as well. Um, can, I guess for full transparency, that's what my husband does. He's a supply chain manager now for a cannabis outlet. 
<laughs> so for for me, um, I think this it was just really important because again, uh, a lot of the propaganda out there talks about laced marijuana. And honestly, well, I, I don't know much about that being a real issue prior to legalization. I do know that um, at, at least that propaganda can be, you know, eliminated completely. And uh, to your point about, you know, it, it being a pipeline to the prison industrial complex, like that for me, um, we talk about this disproportionate amount of Indigenous people in jail on a regular basis. And this is just one of the excuses that white supremacy uses against Indigenous bodies to put them into the drug or to uh, the, the prison industrial complex and, and the lack of rights that Indigenous people have under the best of circumstances, let alone with addiction. Um, when it comes to the opioid crisis, um, again, a lot of this are street drugs and uh, clean supply being probably the most beneficial way to move people from street drugs into sobriety. But the policy right now seems to be a lot of barriers. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about that as well. Yeah, I mean, safe supply, as we call it, I think is critical right now where we are. It's such a important step. Uh, it's something we could do immediately. Uh, during the pandemic, federal policy enabled pharmacists and physicians to prescribe options for people for you know, pharmaceutical grade opioid substances. Um, and there's some options around methamphetamine as well where people could have access to something that they can't, you know, and in other contexts in BC, you know, limited access to um, heroin and heroin substitutes in some studies, you know, but there's a lot of gatekeeping. So while the federal regulations are there, uh, provincially, even in BC, where, you know, compared to Alberta, we think that there's more uh, capacity and access to get this done. Uh, it's just not been done, and dr it, the drugs are not flowing to the people who need them uh, to keep them alive, the people who are most marginalized and most at risk. Uh, there's no clear way to do that. And of course, in this province, uh, the federal policy enables it, and there's been pockets of money for researchers and physicians to do these pilots, uh, but provincial sign-off is doing it. So that's very troubling. Uh, that we could be saving lives uh, or not. You know, I definitely found that provincially when I was running, and that was part of the reason why I was running. And um, one of the most awful moments in politics that happened to me was when one of the folks that had lost her son to uh, overdose looked me dead in the eye and said, you know, I don't want my property value diminishing by having um, a, a place that you can have, you know, a safe consumption site. And I, I was, my heart broke into a million pieces from that moment, because I can't imagine most mothers I know, uh, and then I'm going to give a shout out to Moms Against, or therefore harm reduction, there's a, an organization and I, I, I know a lot of the folks on that um, in that group that are working for safe consumption sites. 
but ultimately, you know, the majority were UCP supporters, the majority are folks that have these conservative values and the majority are unwilling to look at the data and the evidence and move forward. And I was really um, bothered by all of this because, you know, ultimately this, the people who are disproportionately affected are my, you know, Indigenous brothers, sisters, cousins, that's who's dying on the streets because we don't have uh, culturally appropriate trauma-based um, support when it comes to what happened with Indian residential schools, government policy, police brutality. Um, it's pretty hard to talk to a counselor about police brutality when they are for police and they are in disbelief, if, if not gaslighting, their counselor about the possibilities of what a social worker could do, police person, foster parent, like all these levels of trauma that people face on a regular basis and, uh, you know, not a safe place to talk about those things and or acknowledge historical colonialism, trauma, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it, it was a real eye-opening experience to me. So when you talk about provincial barriers, they're at so many levels. Um, when it comes to possible solutions and them gatekeeping those solutions. It, and it's, it's very difficult because I, we're watching the numbers skyrocket and they really are okay with it and a, a population base that seems to be okay with it. So for folks who are like me, who are really struggling with why does everybody seem to think that's okay as a sociologist, maybe you can help explain a little better why it is that people are okay with this current status quo. Yeah, I mean, it, it is heartbreaking and I share that sense of, you know, I, I mean, this has been an incredibly hard week for me personally, just, uh, you know, some barriers uh, that have popped up yet again to getting, uh, to getting support for harm reduction and see, seeing the premium their, you know, support for recovery um, and a, a, a particular recovery center that's rolled out in Alberta. And they did a news story, Michelle, where, um, you know, they were touting some of their therapies and one of the therapies is a drumming circle. And I think you saw me tweet about this, but it's a drumming circle that didn't seem to have any Indigenous leadership or cultural connection and so we have you know uh, a private corporate center co-opting uh some sacred cultural practices in my view which is you know very harmful uh, and it's another example of cultural extraction while not going back to the real issues like you said about um a, a, through a, a reconciliation lens or through uh, you know a human rights lens providing Indigenous people who are using substances yeah. with what they need. Um, yeah, I, I think where it comes from when I try and connect with people on this issue is that we are raised with such baggage about substances. So it really takes people a tremendous epiphany of lived experience for the most part. I don't think it always comes just from like education or or books or or going to a lecture although certainly those things and I'm sure you must um, connect to this in some ways in the in the education right um, 
people have to connect with people and they have to understand the issue firsthand. And so around substances, we are taught a whole bunch of things like people have to hit rock bottom. You just need to give an addict, you know, we use the stigma language, you need to give an addict, a junkie, tough love, and enable them. Uh, you need to kick people out of your life. Uh, you need to set those boundaries. You know, there's, it's a gateway drug. And on the flip side, when we're talking about young people, it's like, well, if you, you talk to young people about substances, they're going to use substances. Uh, you know, if they start using this substance, they're going to get addicted and it's going to be a lifetime of harm. Like, we just have a whole bunch of messed up stuff. <laughs> you know, when we were first talking about legalizing marijuana, uh, I should quit using that term because that's a propaganda term, actually. Uh, but when we were first talking about it, there was a, a wonderful uh, brain doctor for youth from the University of Calgary, and he did a presentation talking about, you know, where some of these myths have come from and how uh, the the study that they did in order to prove, you know, schizophrenia linkage and such, like how misconstrued it was. And I think that really helped me understand um, the the stigma work that, that has been done through, and, and it was actually the 420 group as well that helped teach me about the uh, stigma and language about that as well and I don't think that whether we're talking about sex work or talking about anything there's just this whole propaganda piece that has you know made things worse and it, and it's so pervasive my daughter and I were watching just a silly series from Netflix about um, you know a haunted house and the one of the kids who had seen ghosts his entire life, of course, had addiction as an adult. So, and all of the awful stigma language they could have possibly thrown into that writing was absolutely used. And it was, you know, disappointing to, to hear that. But that on the flip side, my daughter and I were watching that. My daughter is literally, literally grown up in a church uh, with her dad um, every Sunday recording these podcasts with uh, Freedom's Path of incredibly traumatic events that have happened to people that led to their addiction. So from a very young age, she's been very aware that it's trauma that causes the addictions and um, you know, ample supply, bad supply in the case of uh, street drugs and such. And so I know she's starting to learn that, but again, it's one of those things that that was not something I was taught and I had to unlearn that language and I had to unlearn propaganda about marijuana or cannabis, I should say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. I mean, um, it's hard to get these terms out of our language, right? Like, I've been advocating against stigma terms, but one of, and all ableist language, but even in our house, because, you know, my kids and my partner, everyone listens to a lot of hip-hop. Uh, lame is like a, a word that people use a lot in, in hip-hop songs and like it's, it's not a great term uh, for disability so we all have those phrases that like lodge into our language that we work on I totally get it but it's more about like changing the cultural currency around that right and publish and being humble when people say oh, like can you switch your term um yeah I mean there's there's so much baggage um I, I was just talking to a friend yesterday and I was, I say this a lot also to parents is, and you'll appreciate this because your daughter is still a teenager or young adult. 
Yep, she's 14. Yeah, so we've got there with sex education in schools because I know my my older one is just starting this journey of, of getting that health curriculum in, in the classroom. Of course, some parents have their kids sit out for their own reasons, but the conversations we're having about gender identity, about sexuality, um, about consent, those conversations are light years ahead. You know, when I was in high school, we were the first generation because we were in the height of the AIDS crisis to have condom dispensers in my high school basketball in Toronto. Um, you know, and that I've seen that conversation change. Sometimes not so much, but I mean, we have more open conversations about sexuality. Oh. We're not there with drugs. We still think that we're going to, you know, scare people. We're going to have drug use education delivered by police officers, which is probably the worst thing. Um, and we still feel like if me as a parent, if I talk to my kid about substance use, uh, you know, that's somehow going to let them know that. I think just like we do around sexuality, there's some topics and some information I don't share with my kids. It has to be in an age appropriate way. Mm-hmm. And in a way that's, you know, comfortable for them and comfortable for me. But there are baseline facts around staying safe around what to do if you get into trouble. Uh, and I think we, we start too late with drugs. Like we really need to be starting right now. We need to be having those conversations well before they get to Japan. Because having a young person start junior high this year, I know like, you know, vaping is already starting with grade seven. So if I had waited to now to start talking to, to my little person about it, uh, not so little anymore, it would have been too young. So she's a foot taller than me. So I get it. <laughs> you know, uh, it was interesting. You should say that. I, I just learned this from my husband. Um, he was telling me that a lot of those uh, uh, kiosks and um, you can usually find uh, drug paraphernalia or vaping stuff at a lot of the um, gas stations, that they're really cheap China made uh, lead based products and it and his organization his uh group is actually trying to work with the government at uh you know making even the application the products themselves being the safe supply that they're forced to live under under their guidelines and they want those guidelines across the board obviously because nobody should be vaping with lead-based anything let alone um you know so it's interesting, like from a policy perspective, there's so many gaps in, in safe consumption when it comes to what is mainstream and what is socially acceptable. Um, I know in Calgary East, geez, years ago, we were already talking about vaping and not having any data on it, not having any uh, guidelines, and of course, encouraging youth not to um, consume that. And that's incredibly problematic because lots of people now are users of these vapes and we don't actually have proper guidelines in place to keep them safe and again if we're going to talk about gateways you know if you're already vaping i mean (laughs) you're not supposed to be smoking under under 18 so we have a lot of gaps in policies what are some of the bigger gaps of things that like if you could change the world today what are some things you'd want to see right now happen yeah um well, safe supply we've talked about. Uh, I think the push for decriminalization is continuing to mount. And I know too, 
people not involved in drug policy, this may seem like pie in the sky. But, you know, returning to what you were reminding us of, like people like Keith and others in the cannabis community in Calgary and elsewhere who never thought they'd see cannabis legalization in their lifetimes, right? Mm -hmm. So I think decriminalization is the next big project. Um, because like we were talking about with stigma, whether it's the labels we use or the the nimbyism of not wanting drug use in our backyard. Um, in addition to the baggage I was talking about, the values we have, that's the context, right? When something is illegal, the person is seen as bad. Yeah. It's kind of random, the substances that we choose to make illegal and the substances that are illegal. Given that, so many people use substances and so many people use illegal substances in ways that are problematic. But right now the drug supply is contaminated and so you know those can have fatal consequences yeah and like the example you were giving with vaping when youth only have access to maybe low rent products or aftermarket products that they're getting from illegal channels that's what creates risk so the illegality creates the risk in the supply chain it heightens stigma uh, you know, and it puts people in a riskier environment when they have to interact with the legal markets. Now, not necessarily, uh, because honestly, I I know more people who've sold drugs uh, closely than I know people who really use drugs properly. Obviously, my field of work, I work with people using drugs. But, um, you know, I, I think people don't remember that these economies support families and support people. Don't get me wrong, this is not me advocating for selling drugs as a, as a great profession and an economic solution. Uh, but these networks are embedded in communities um, and they're supporting people in families. So if we could change the policies to take this away from illegal markets and shift entire economies, I think this could be definitely more positive and definitely less violence. Now, this is the same thing though with cannabis is that, you know, at the same time we have to divert resources jail. So what are people going to do? You know, who are they going to be arresting if they're not out there? Mm. I think the problem is we, we see a lot of media, like you said, propaganda that we're taking the supply off the street. Um, but often what that does is just lead to turf wars, um, to territorial uh, rivalries between drug sellers, escalated violence. Um, and as we see during the pandemic, drugs can uh, make it across the border or ingredients to formulate drugs can, can make it across the border and just have even more toxic supply. So, you know, these are, are high level policy solutions. And I don't, you know, I advocate for these things, but I don't work on those policies at that level. But I definitely, in the past six years, have. Um, really come to see that there's not going to be a lot of change without, without decriminalization and without pushing for that. And then in the past two to three years, you know, I call myself a baby abolitionist because I'm just really coming into trying to understand and think about uh, policing and jails and other community-based solutions. Honestly, Rebecca, same. I grew up believing cops were great, um, that they help you. And even though when you look at my own, the own evidence in my own life proved otherwise. Um, 
I was just talking to my husband about when my brother got beat up and there was no real investigation. And because of our society, my own brother is perfectly accept. He thinks that that's fine. That's perfectly acceptable behavior and it's not. Um, and then also negating the fact that he really, you know, doesn't see himself as a native. And it's like, you don't see that as a contributing factor as a result of your societal bringing up as well. So there's so many levels of, of um, how we, we perpetuate our own um, destruction in so many ways. So anyway, uh, you know what? I wanted to change the channels real quick because, in, you know, just as we... Um, we talked about some really super heavy stuff and I know you're an expert in this and I'm going to be promoting your your Twitter account and hoping people follow the work that you do. It took me a little while to figure out that you are a part of the original Degrassi Junior High crew. That took me some time, <laughs> which is interesting. You're not going to believe this, but you know, I grew up in a small town, Sylvan Lake. Uh, Dina Henshaw was the grade above me. My husband are, and her are in the same class. And um, I had a teacher that in grade five, she for social studies, we watched Degrassi Junior High. And then we, we discussed it. And, and did you ever think that that show would have that type of impact in the middle of small town Alberta? Well, you know what? I have met a lot of Albertans who have grown up with it. Um, and I see the impact that it had. I, I have a, a close friend that I met here and, um, you know, uh, they memorized a lot of the, the episodes and they know more lines than me. I think they've seen all the episodes. I don't know if I've seen them all. So yeah, I, I see that impact that it has. I know a lot of people watched it at school. Um, and uh, Pat Mastroianni, who played Joey Jeremiah, organizes some fan events. And so I've got to meet and, uh, and hear from people firsthand who grew up with it. And then the new generation of folks who come into it that are the kids of people who watched it. So yeah, it's amazing. It's been a lot of years. No kidding. The, I, I, I mean, I'm 44 and I don't have a lot of memory. It's been worse in the pandemic, 100%. I just remember the character of Spike, um, you know, and, and going through pregnancy. That was a big issue for me because uh, slut shaming was such an issue in my upbringing from about that time. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember feeling like women just have a war on them in so many ways. So I, um, I just hope, you know, I really appreciated that. That's for sure. But one of your cast member members did uh, succumb to addiction as well, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's hard to say exactly, but... Um... My friend, Neil Hope, um, you know, had a lot of childhood trauma and had lost a parent in connection to alcohol. Uh, I think when the show ended, struggled to find his way and had been on the show for the original versions, even as a kid, starting at, you know, age nine, I think, eight or nine. Uh, and then, you know, 10 years later, found himself with not many options. And so in some ways it's a story of that, um, I think that tragic story that we always see that I still kind of get upset about, about a child star who, um, you know, starts using substances to cope. Uh, but also just like, um, like I was very close to Neil because we have some of the same family background around parental substance use and childhood trauma. 
And so we, in some ways we were very similar. So his death really struck a chord with me because uh, you can see the, where the two paths diverge. And I often think about my own story that I can see the intervention points along the way and the places where maybe I made better choices or maybe I had a hand up or, you know, maybe it was just dumb luck. Um, but I'm not that far away from Neil's path. It could have, for any reason, it could have also been me. And certainly people I grew up with and people I've been close to, you know, have also struggled and had those, those experiences. So yeah. Neil, Neil um, had diabetes, um, you know, which was worsened by alcoholism. And so, uh, you know, likely died from those consequences, but it's hard because he was, he was found later um, without medical interventions. It's hard to know exactly what the consequences were. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think, you know, and I really relate to what you say because a lot of folks in my circles you know, grew up in domestic violence, had family that were, um, you know, uh, using some sort of um, drug, whether it's alcohol or whichever. And I, uh, you know, I, I've seen white friends of mine struggle in um, Sylvan Lake. I lost uh, one, one of my, one of my friends that I grew up with. I was playing in his backyard on his trampoline and he passed away of drug overdose. And he tragically lost his father in a hunting accident, which I know probably sounds very stereotypical, you know, two Alberta teachers going for hunting and one tragically dies in a hunting accident, but that legitimately happened to my teacher and, and his son, um, you know, struggled and, and he was so talented and so funny and such a kind person, um, you know, anyway, I, it, it's hard because you know, and that was, that was white people. That wasn't even the intergenerational trauma and uh, government policy that was imposed on my people. So on the flip side, in my indigenous circles, how, when I see people go missing or murdered, how easily that could have been us. Um, we just went through a move and I found the pictures of my brother's beating when he was younger in Sylvan Lake. And, and sometimes I just don't, I, I see as well those moments where, you know, we moved him to Calgary or um, for me, I was able to find a partner that wasn't abusive and I went through counseling in my 20s and, you know, but that wasn't afforded to other people, um, you know, all these things. My, my really progressive doctor and pharmacist in Sylvan Lake, there were, you know, um, I graduated with the son of the doctor. Uh, he was our valedictorian. And they gave me free uh, birth control in my teens. And uh, even despite the slut shaming, I took it anyway. And, uh, and you know, again, that's not an intervention not everybody else would have been afforded, especially in small town, Sylvan, or small town Alberta, right? So, uh, so I, I appreciate what you're saying there and, and how easily it could have been me um, or, or my family in some capacity. So, yeah, I really appreciate this conversation that we had today, and I, I welcome you back anytime. Um, you've been one of those people that I really feel need to be amplified on Twitter on a regular basis. I've been trying to figure out uh, social media seems to be something that I, I need to do a, a bigger cleanse from, and uh, and I don't know how to work all of this, but I do know I've really appreciated certain friendships, and yours is one of them. So I appreciate you coming onto my show and talking about these things from your perspective. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we uh, go into the to the end? 
No, Michelle, I just want to thank you. I'm sorry I didn't get to have this conversation earlier, but I have learned a tremendous amount from you about um, Indigenous communities and issues in Alberta and also parenting and also local politics. It's incredibly helpful to follow you. I just want to say you're also super generous with your time when I've had questions about things not to speak for all Indigenous people, but just for me to check in about things I've wanted to ask. And I think we need more of those relationships, especially between people with different types of expertise, whether it's community expertise or academic expertise. And we do need those connections where we feel safe and able to ask. And so this is one place where we can start having those conversations. And I know you devote a tremendous amount of your time to do community education. I do that too, but on, on other topics. So I'm yeah. just really thankful for, for you, um, you know, amplifying my voice and I'll try to do the same for you. <laughs> it's a love fest. It really is. And I, I, I have to say your shirt is so fabulous. I love it. I love it. You know, this is the type of prisoners rights project. Um, they have a site online you can buy and support them. They have various merch and things, but I love this one because it's, it's a beautiful, positive message, right? Like we can, we can plant flowers. We can do better things in community. Uh, we can think differently. So, like I said, I'm I'm starting my journey in abolitionist thinking, and um, maybe that's another book club. I don't know. I'll see. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, you know what? I a uh, long time ago, uh, there was a fellow named Rod Hartling. He was in the Liberal Party, and he was working to keep farming in some of the prisons so that, uh, you know, of course, there was the self-sufficiency aspect, but that bigger picture of, you know, prisoners working on their food and such. Um, and, and when that was cut under Harper, I was like, oh, my God, why would you cut this? It's such a positive thing to be doing. And it's like that Michelle then compared to this Michelle that just, um, you know, I have 4,000 Indigenous females that have never gotten justice. I have you know, 231 solutions that have been here since the inquiry's uh, final recap. And I just, I'm not seeing any like push to get that and the 94 calls to action like implemented. And, and it's just driving me wild because I just don't understand how you can have these solutions to all of these problems and, and we're not even gonna focus on it a little and, you know, call to action 57, anti-racism work, like, that's one of 94. And as you've seen, you know, you have sons that are black, you've seen how little, you know, folks in position of power want to deal with this. Um, you know, I, I got paid really well from this one organization, but like the, the organizers were regularly on the verge of tears and would tell me when we're done this conversation, they're going to go have a cry. And I'm like, you know, at, at what point in time do you can we just move past ourselves and our egos like this isn't about me this isn't about you this is about a concept of you know settler fragility white fragility let's move forward and I just I just want to see positivity happening here where everybody feels inclusive and I don't know about you but I can say for me I was raised with this idea of human rights that that we were a country of human rights that peacekeeping mattered all of these things and then when now that I'm older as an adult, it's like I have to deprogram all of this propaganda that was given to me because it's not just false, but it's harmful in the sense that it's created, you know, a disproportionate amount of deaths, um, out, negative outcomes in so many different fields. So I just hope you know, 
you're not alone in uh, being being a baby uh, up towards abol abolishing police because I'm I'm with you and I I don't know I just assume that they would care about us. <laughs> That's what the propaganda told me. <laughs> and it's it's about changing over time and and having all those experiences and then someone like putting a name to what can be done. Yeah. I mean, one example, and I'll just use this last one, like there's two things that my partner as, you know, a six foot tall, broad shoulder black man has experienced that I'll never experience. And one is being asked if he plays in the CFL, um, which is a ridiculous racist assumption. Like there's no other jobs or roles that black people could have, especially Calgary has been asked that many times. Um, and if he is selling weed, you know, I'm a white blonde woman and I've gone out and been around lots of places over the years and I've never been asked if I'm selling weed, right? Um, and so that's just an example of everyday microaggression, one quote unquote positive, like, oh, you're a football player, another one negative, oh, you're a drug seller um, that I'll never experience. And, you know, as you live and understand those experiences over time, you think, there has to be different ways or we have to speak up and shout. So I really, really appreciate what you said about white tears and white women's fragility. And that's something else we need to work on. Um, and white people speaking up about racism and white people make white supremacy. I think it's not the answer. Our voices shouldn't be front and center, but I think definitely there's a contingent of white people who, hear it when the white person says it. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, I try to amplify other voices for that reason. Like, I mean, I can share uh, Kanagis Manuel's what, you know, violence that she's receiving from the RCMP at Wet'suwet'en. But when I look at David Kahn tweeting about, you know, Indigenous injustice, it gets so much more retweets. Right. So, you know, like, it, it's just, I, I want to promote only her. But I, if I do, then nobody sees it, nobody hears it. That's the way the algorithms are designed. But somebody like David Kahn, they are set up for him, for, for people to see it, retweet it, to read it. Um, you know, so for me saying the UCP blocked me because I talk about indigenous rights, it doesn't seem to resonate. But when you see the fascism uh, coming from other countries and Chevron doing it over here, that somehow it resonates better with the, you know, Albertans, which is, so incredible to me. So to me, I, I have to retweet other people, um, even problematic people at times that I don't love. Uh, but at the same time, you, you know, the issue sometimes is bigger than the account user or whichever, right, as well. And uh, so that's why, you know, I, even Rachel Notley, like I obviously I ran as a liberal. So inherently, we don't agree on so many things. But I mean, on so many things, she's right. And especially in this moment, in this moment of UCP fascism, you know, we have to uh, put aside those small differences and be like the bigger picture here is fascism and you're either on side or you're not. So <laughs> anyway, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that we can uh, discuss this further as we move forward. I'm hoping people will, you know, give us some feedback on this one because Abolishing police, um, decriminalization, like these are big conversations to have with people. I know I've lost many friends over talking about it um, over the years because they weren't ready to hear it. So my hope is 
uh, especially in indigenous communities where cannabis is still really looked upon in a negative way, despite the fact like I, we have the evidence in, in the database of, of uh, you know, sales where, you know, it is really clear to us who is using and who is masking the, you know, and I can't go to a doctor and get the same help. So masking and using cannabis um, as a as a help to get through this anxiety to get, you know, all of these issues that are are so painfully clear. If I were white would get proper care for but because I'm indigenous, I don't, you know, cannabis is a is one of those tools I see a lot of our community using, but I don't want to see them be ashamed of it. I don't want to see that internalized oppression. Um, you know, I want them to understand it's legal, it's okay to use, um, especially if it's clean street drugs, or, or as opposed to street drugs, um, where those are not clean. But even that, like, and anyway, I'll get into that another time, another day, but I could go on and on. And I'm, I want to do it with you because you out of all people understand this topic, and you're not going to use um, dehumanizing language when it comes to it. And, uh, and I've always felt because, um, you know, you do have black children that you do have a lens of, you have to do better on the issue of racism. And um, I have another, uh, my, my old boss, actually, she also has a partner who's black and had some kids with him. So she has been a really good advocate. She helped change the name. Uh, you're not going to believe this, but Western High School's mascot used to be Redmen. So they changed them. After some advocacy, after the Reconciliation Commission report came out, you know, um, but she also had an adopted Indigenous brother, right? So these these things, though, like they all come together, where um, it's like the the more allies we can get on on side, that's what we have to do. And as Mary Sinclair recently said, you know, we have to arm the reasonable. And uh, so that's of course who my target audience is. I mean, I wish I knew how to, you know, get those mega hat wearing fascists to understand these things, but I can't. So I just work with people who do understand and hopefully we'll um, eventually get there where people aren't, I don't know, in this cycle of self-hate. Oh, la. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rebecca. Okay, I'll, I invite you to chime in as I do my exit. And, um, you know, I just, I can't thank you enough for coming on. So. I'm really proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training, cultural first aid, and almost all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous, people of colour, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. And I think uh, if anybody were to Google cultural safety for Indigenous, you would come up with even more uh, resources at this point. Uh, their work and those cultural action tools I've said in my podcast, so please support Indigenous work as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of oppression imposed on these lands. Uh, RacialEquityTools.org by Donna Bevins has a great piece about internalized racism. And if you were just to Google internalized oppression, you would find out more about this. And especially if you are um, part of these groups, like even myself as an Indigenous person raised in a white society, um, I had to really start um, questioning the reasons why I internalized so many things and how I was white coding uh, for the 
a lack of better terminology, uh, but also that self-hate uh, when it came to sexism. And even more recently with the Black Lives Matter movement, despite growing up in a time of, you know, George, or uh, I guess Rodney King, and when NWA first came out, um, because I had Oprah, I didn't think I was racist. And more recently had to really look at the internalized um, anti-Black bias that I had within me and had to really address it and work at um, unlearning what I was taught by white supremacist society about Black people, even though that is not my lived experience. So, you know, so many things for us to work on. Uh, Rebecca really focused on ableist language. Uh, you may hear me use the word crazy now and then, and every time I wish I could slap my hand. So, you know, you reuse words like um, wild, et cetera, et cetera. So this is internalized oppression. This is the D stigmatizing language that we were trying to address. So internalized racism, internalized oppression, internalized, internalized, internalized. These are our concepts that I hope folks really take away from not just today's podcast, but other podcasts as well. Uh, do's and don'ts, bystander intervention for American Friends Service Committee. So that has uh, what to do if you see like a Muslim woman being um, uh, harassed on the C train station. These are things that we all need to know how to intervene in a positive way and de-escalate situations. Um, Indigenous have been talking about uh, these issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings so it can be regularly disregarded. Uh, no more, honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, funding police in, in schools and, and in general, know that your vote to that party or that person is directly negatively impacting people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to actions, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Two-Spirit, Denying all of these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. They don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism. They literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. Really great article I said out loud in episode 62 was Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. I highly recommend it to folks. Um, you can Google so many new articles about being a good ally to Indigenous people. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. And for more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can also call 844-413-6649. It is a 24-7 crisis line. And for most non-Indigenous, you can have a functioning 211 system in your area, but you can also call 
4566, and the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta is ssisa.ca, if more related to um, being an adopted Indigenous child, can go to hashtag survivor driven for that. Um, if you experience racism here in Alberta, you can actually report it to Act to End Racism. You can text 587-507-3838 and it will prompt you to their website and give you some tools about what to do. Another organization I really support is the Trevor Project. You can go to lifevoice.ca for their crisis supports for LGBTQ um, supports, whether it's trans lifeline, uh, youth, or a peer support. So uh, lifevoice.ca, or you can call 866-844-7386. And for the Kids Help Phone, which even I utilized when I was a kid, because it's that old, 1-800-668-6868. Violence is an everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started a podcast, to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous ideas and opinions, but sure want to tell us there's about Indigenous. Uh, they don't know what our experience is, colonialism, constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights, microaggressions that we experience on a daily basis, internalized racism, internalized oppression, gatekeeping, people who survive off the status quo, and then folks who are so in their trauma that they um, you know, deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. I also started this podcast um, because we're just not hearing unfiltered Indigenous voices. Um, that bigger picture of if you're funded by the government, you can't necessarily put down the government. <laughs> I'm not funded by anybody. So I'm just going to uh, be honest about what I see and I hear. To my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your examples. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her. I'm a second generation proud Calgarian, but I don't recommend people call themselves native intercolonial city anywhere because it's actually quite racist to indigenous people. And that's why I named it uh, native Calgarian so that folks would realize that when you call yourself a native Calgarian and you're not indigenous, it sounds pretty racist to indigenous people. Thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, my father, or the father of our child down the, um, our you know, world of experience. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism and encouraged me down the red road. Uh, to our child who we are blessed to learn from daily. We're honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better, a stronger person. My hope is my daughter, my aunts, my uncles, my family will be proud in the future of us trying to present and discuss these issues that we're experiencing right now. Um, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments and your questions. And I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. If you're lucky, I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond or you'd be in my dish. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>